I want to welcome all the visitors. Thank you for coming this morning. I was born and raised a Roman Catholic. I love Roman Catholic people. I have family and friends that are Roman Catholics. Obviously, I love them and I want to see them all in heaven. So I want you to understand the motive of my heart. I love Catholic people. But we are examining in a four-part series the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church in love, I trust, and comparing them to the scriptures. I am in part three. The title of my message this morning is, Is the Pope Really Infallible? My motive for this series is love for God and love for God's truth. Jesus Christ said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And the Apostle Paul once asked, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? My message this morning is on the man that the Roman Catholic Church calls the Holy Father or His Holiness. He is also referred to as the Supreme Pontiff, which means the Supreme High Priest. The Pope, according to Rome, is the Vicar of Christ on Earth. The word vicar literally means substitute or the person who acts in the place of another. According to Roman Catholic doctrine, when the Pope speaks on matters of faith and morals, he is infallible. That is to say, and this is from the actual, this is, I, I'm quoting from the Vatican documents and the official Roman Catholic Catechism, when the, speak, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that is when he speaks on matters of faith and morals, he is infallible, which means he is literally incapable of deceiving or being deceived and is immune from error. Furthermore, the Pope has authority over 3,250 bishops. According to the Catholic Catechism, I'm quoting, the bishops are assured freedom from error provided they are in union with the Bishop of Rome. This includes not only revealed truths, but on any teaching, even historical facts, principles of philosophy, or norms of natural law that are in any way connected with divine revelation. Vatican II's dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, approved by the Church Council and signed by the Pope on November 18, 1965, states, quote, the duty of interpreting God's word has been entrusted exclusively to the teaching office of the church. This teaching office is exercised by the pope and the bishops for all interpretation of scripture. It is common knowledge, brothers and sisters, that when a man attends a Catholic seminary, the emphasis is on Catholic doctrine rather than on learning the art and the science of biblical interpretation known as hermeneutics. In the book, Dogmatic Theology for the Laity, we read, quote, The teaching office of the church is more important than the Bible. Only an infallible church can interpret the true meaning of sacred scripture. No one can do this for himself. Close quote. 
As I look at the Bible, I was reminded of Acts chapter 17, where we read, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. The apostles commended this group of people known as the Bereans for checking out what they, the apostles, were teaching compared to Scripture. Yet the Roman Catholic Church tells us that we are incapable of interpreting the Bible for ourselves and therefore should not attempt to. This is completely contrary to the Word of God. In Psalm 1 we read, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But he delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. In Joshua 1.8 we find, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. In the New Testament epistles, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we find this command, Study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, correctly interpreting the word of truth. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. There were so many. I ended with this one in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, speaking to Satan in the wilderness, said, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. One well-known theologian stated it this way, The simplest layman armed with scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. Are the popes infallible on matters of morals and faith? The historical record is a matter of fact. As I studied the history of the Catholic Church, I can assure you I was not on a witch hunt. I honestly had no idea what I would find. I am not an expert on Catholic history. I had to go to the libraries, and most of the men I'm going to quote from right now are Catholic theologians. I'm only going to take a minute on this, and then I'll take you back up to the state of the Church of the Vatican today. How many of you have heard of the Inquisition? Let me see your hands. I knew very little about it until I dug into my history books. I started with the dictionary, a secular dictionary right in the office here. I looked up the word Inquisition. It says, a court appointed by the Roman Catholic Church to discover heresy and to punish heretics. Punish heretics indeed. It lasted for 300 years. It extended throughout Europe, Africa, and the Americas. It was so bad that even Catholic historians had to admit that many of the popes were guilty of the worst kinds of sin and crime and immorality. Professor Dolinger, a Roman Catholic Church historian and professor at Munich, wrote a book entitled The Pope and the Council, published in the late 19th century. I quote, The initiation and the carrying out of this new principle, speaking of the Inquisition, 
must be ascribed to the popes alone. It was the popes who compelled the bishops and the priests to condemn the heterodox, that is, people who don't agree with you, to torture, confiscation of their goods, imprisonment, and death. From 1200 to 1500, the long series of papal ordinances on the Inquisition, ever increasing in severity and cruelty, runs on without a break by the absolute dictation of the popes and the notion of their infallibility. The Inquisition contradicted the simplest principles of Christian justice and would have been rejected with universal horror by the first century church. Close quote. Jesuit priest Peter de Rosa in his book Vicars of Christ documented the fact that many of the popes down throughout history engaged in widespread corruption including murder, rape, extortion on a grand scale. De Rosa went on to say that Pope John Paul II, quote, knows the church was responsible for persecuting the Jews, for the Inquisition, for the slaughtering of heretics, and for reintroducing torture into Europe as part of the judicial process. But he has to be careful. The doctrines responsible for those terrible things still underpin his positions, close quote. That from a Catholic theologian. I only quoted Catholic historians. The Protestants revealed details of the torture that were far too gruesome to go into in this context this morning. Early Protestant creeds unanimously referred to the Pope as the Antichrist, not only because of Rome's heresies, but because of the blatant immorality of Pope after Pope. It was common knowledge. My point in telling you all this is to remind you that Catholic doctrine teaches that the Pope speaks without error on matters of morals, and that these men who were responsible for some of the worst atrocities of the history of the human race are to this day referred to in Roman Catholic circles as vicars of Christ and successors to the apostles. Dave Hunt writes, even if the popes had been paragons of virtue, it would still be a mockery to claim that they represent an unbroken chain of apostolic succession back to Peter. It was long the custom of the popes to be voted in by the populace of Rome, which had its own selfish reasons for desiring one candidate over another. Such a majority vote could hardly be called apostolic succession. Some popes were deposed by angry mobs protesting their unbearable evil. Others were installed and or deposed by kings and emperors. Political expediency, along with the wealth and the influence of the candidate, as often as not, determined who would be pope. Apostolic succession, indeed. Now I'd like to give you a contemporary perspective. To this day, Almost 50 years after the United Nations recognized Israel as a sovereign nation in one of the greatest fulfillments of Bible prophecy ever, the Vatican has never conceded Israel's right to exist and wants Jerusalem to be not under Jewish hands but under international control. Ironic in light of the fact 
that it was part of God's sovereign covenant to give that land to the Jews in the first place. And God's position has never changed, yet the Vatican refuses to recognize the legitimacy of Jerusalem in Jewish hands to this day. More frightening is the fact that Pope John Paul II is without question the world's foremost leading proponent of the most unprecedented move to unite all religions in the history of, the, in the history of this race. On October 27, 1987, in a meeting at Assisi, representatives of almost every major religion in the world gathered at the Pope's invitation for a day of prayer for peace. In his opening remarks, the Pope declared to the world, the challenge of peace, as it is presently posed to every human conscience, transcends religious differences. When Pope John Paul II went to Calcutta and New Delhi, India, he said, and I quote, I have come to learn of the great spiritual heritage of India. Spiritual heritage of India. I just left India not too long ago, and I can tell you firsthand that the great spiritual heritage of Hinduism has left India without question the poorest, most pitiful, spiritually bankrupt country on the face of the earth. Hindu priests are slaughtering Christians by the thousands in northern India. To the Hindu, Jesus Christ is a minor god among 330 million other gods. Yet the Pope tells the Hindus, and I quote, we are all filled with the same Holy Spirit. And what of Islam? The Pope told the Muslim world that we all worship the same God. Yet to the Muslim, there is no God but Allah. Muhammad is his prophet. God cannot beget. And Jesus did not die on the cross for our sins. The Bible, Jesus Christ, the true Lord of glory, says love your enemies. And Muhammad said that the surest way to paradise is to kill an infidel, i.e. a Jew or a Christian. This is the man who speaks infallibly on matters of morals and faith? According to the official Catholic catechism, quote, an obedient adherence must be given to their definitions of faith. Whatever happened to the supremacy of Christ? In closing, according to the Second Vatican Council, the bishops, and I quote, have by divine institution taken the place of the apostles. And whoever listens to them is listening to Christ. And whoever despises them despises Christ and him who sent Christ. Let me tell you what they mean by he who despises them. What they mean by that is he who disagrees with them disagrees with Christ and him who sent Christ. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, the Bible tells us the true qualifications of a true apostle. Quote, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Brothers and sisters, the apostles were men that were handpicked by Jesus Christ and were empowered to raise the dead, heal disease, and cast out demons.
In 2 Corinthians, the apostle in chapter 11 said, But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And why is Paul telling them this? In verse 11 he says, Why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. And that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded as we are, i.e. as apostles, in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. I leave you with this quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who is arguably the finest mind in the history of the Christian church since the Apostle Paul. Charles Haddon Spurgeon has more books in writing than any other man alive or dead with the exception of the Bible. He said, and I quote, Our fathers went at the stake. They gave themselves to death for truths which men can nowadays count unimportant but which being truth were to them so vital that they would sooner die than suffer them to be dishonored. Oh, for the same uncompromising love of the truth, may there ever be found some men who shall denounce again and again all league with error and all compromise with sin as the abhorrence of God. Oh, that we may be committed to truth, no matter where it may lead us, no matter what the cost. Jesus Christ is truth, and the Bible says that God's throne is based on righteousness and truth. Let's pray.